my teen years, I loved the book series, The Incarnations of Immortality. Santos slash the Grim Reaper was one of my favorite characters. And as an adult, I guess that fascination sort of held over because every Halloween, I dress up like the Grim Reaper. In fact, I even have a real scythe hung from the pegboard in my garage. Now, that being said, for all of my interest in the incarnation itself, I have only had my grandparents die. And when my son was diagnosed with leukemia, my mind would occasionally turn to the what if, and I would immediately retreat. It was too overwhelming to even think of the possibility. Well, at the Western States Folklore Conference this past weekend, there was a paper presented exploring the use of a character, the Grim Reaper or the like, and there is a different one in every single culture, to represent an event that we each must face. One suggestion that was made during that presentation was that we have creative figure to escort us from this life into the next because we don't know where we are going. There are so many unknowns. And perhaps those unknowns are what creates so much fear around death. But as the cheeky like to say, no one is getting out of here alive. Mm-hmm. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Margaret Maloney, the author of Carpooling with Death, is a Buddhist practitioner and a new voice on the subject of death awareness. Dealing with the death of her father, her mother, and her husband within a two-year period gave her the opportunity to, quote, make friends with death, as she put it. And her book is here to help others accept death as an essential part of life and to become death ready. So I'm really excited to have her on the podcast today because Margaret is a new voice on this subject. And it's a subject that, like me, many others have a hard time facing. I think that's a common human thought. I just don't spend much time thinking about it because I don't want to attract it in any way. So, you know, I'm not necessarily afraid of my own death. I just don't spend much time thinking about it, thankfully, because I haven't had to. So when Margaret's book first came out and I got a copy of it, she said, what did you think? And I said, Margaret, I haven't read it. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to attract anything regarding death. And she was very patient with me and said, okay. And then as I started reading it in preparation for this interview, I realized that exactly what her book, Carpooling with Death, is bringing into the forefront is the need that we have to just realistically look at what it is for what it is and to not be afraid, but to be prepared and to be able to go through that, either our own deaths or deaths of loved ones in a prepared and peaceful way. So Margaret's going to talk to us about this today, share her story and then what she has learned about navigating this really difficult space. So Margaret, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you so much, Lori. I loving what you have just shared with all of us. And I had no idea that you had a Grim Reaper costume. Oh, yeah. 
we could be leveraging that because for the people who, you know, will see the cover of the book, I've got a big old picture of the Grim Reaper right on the, the cover of my book, Carpooling with Death. And I had no idea, my friend, that you were masquerading as my other friend, the Grim Reaper. That is amazing. <laughs> when we're carpooling together in California, you are. <laughs> I'm going to make you get that. I'm going to have you bring that costume out. And then yeah, we can write it off as an expense, I guess, because it'll be like a promotional thing. I like that. We can do some video, some like live Facebook live with you. Gosh, yes. You've been hiding this from me. Well, (laughs) you know, I already knew this was going to be a really nice conversation. And now I know even more that you are really the right person to have this talk with because of, you know, everything you just shared. And, And yes, it's true. I mean, the Grim Reaper is a, you know, a character. And the reason he became a character for me, even before... I came to the realization, and I, I will talk about that, of course, even before I came to the realization, like, hey, people are going to die. And there are these books that my husband, my late husband, Ed, and I used to read by Terry Pratchett. And mm-hmm. some of you may have heard of them. And he has lots of books, but one is called the Discworld series. And in his books, death is a character. So that's where I know I got the idea. And in the book, the reason you know death is present is because it's all in capital letters. Mm. And so when you see a sentence that's spoken by a character and it's in capital letters, you know that that's the Grim Reaper. And that was kind of the beginning of me getting comfortable with death as a character. And Terry Pratchett's books are, you know, they're fun and they're funny and they're a little sarcastic. And I guess that was probably the first place that got me used to Grim as a character. So tell the listeners who you are. Tell me about your story and then why you named the book Carpooling with Death. So my story, I got to a point in my life where I began, this is going to sound silly because really at any point in our life, we can all know this. I realized people were going to die, but really specifically what I really mean is that I looked around and I thought, you know, I had a mother-in-law who was almost old enough to be my grandmother. So she was in her nineties and then, you know, my parents were getting into their eighties And despite the fact that my mother-in-law had longevity, her husband had not. And so my husband was at around the age that his own father had died. And so I'll say these things were kind of swirling around me with this recognition that like, you know, you're going to have to say goodbye to people that you love. And I didn't like that idea. And, you know, before this, I had already said goodbye to people whom I loved, but I guess it wasn't in a such a fashion that I realized like you possibly will have to say goodbye to everyone you love. When I was in high school during the very like first couple of months of the first year, someone who I was just meeting, we had just had lunch, died in a car accident. And that was just shocking to me, you know, because how could this happen? And I'm like, gosh, I just saw her yesterday. When I was younger, yes, I had grandparents die, but it didn't make as big a mark. And then when I was in my 20s, I had my favorite aunt died, and that was very difficult. So that was kind of it. But it still, I would just say, I got to this point where I was like, you know, I started having these premonitions that people were going to die and that I was going to be possibly left behind that because of the age of the people around me, that I was maybe going to be the last one left. And I just began to develop this fear. And, you know, you said earlier, you know, not really afraid of my own death. So true. I mean, I think, you know, I wasn't thinking I'm afraid of my own death. I am afraid of losing the people I love to death. 
And I began to realize that I didn't know if I was enable in shape, so to speak, to handle it. And yet it wasn't going to matter because it's coming. It's going to happen, like whether you're in shape or not. You know, from a logical standpoint, of course, that makes perfect sense, right? Like everybody is going to leave. Everybody is going to die. We don't know when. It could Mm -hmm. be like your friend in high school where the next day somebody very young leaves. Mm -hmm. Or it could be like you're speaking about where the people around you are older and they've lived through their space. But Everybody's going to. And yet, because, and I'm sure there's myriads of reasons, but because we don't know what's on the other side, because we will leave loved ones, because, you know, and of course, if you think you know what's on the other side, that's great. There, That comes from a space of faith, potentially, but you don't really know, you right. know. And so, I think all of those things create the unknown and loss always create fear. Those are things that have pain and often death itself can be painful. So, Sure, it's really something that we as humans need to learn how to understand and accept and navigate. And yet, so many of us, we just don't. Yeah, myself included. It's something that why think about it if you don't have to? Well, and it's not just you, Lori. I mean, I think I'm very fortunate that people have been really receptive of carpooling with death, but that doesn't mean it, it isn't difficult. And I can think of people who have gone through similar situations to mine, and I would think they would be like wide open to this. And I've had some of them look at me and say, I already had to go through that. Why would I revisit that? And I would think, but you're the perfect person to be able to talk to others, you know, because once you go through it, you're the perfect resource to help others. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who have lost people more quickly than I have. They've lost people much younger than I have. But I realize now that I'm a resource. So to my friends, who haven't lost their parents, who haven't lost their spouses. I know that if they'll let me, then I'm going to be the right one to help them because now I've been through the other side. And if nothing else, I'm proof like you can live through this and I have an amazing life. I miss my people whom I loved still, but I have an amazing, wonderful life and I'm a fortunate person. So, Margaret, tell me about your story about the passing of your loved ones. So, I call her my warning. Okay, so the phrase is warning shot, and I apologize because that isn't always a well-received phrase. My mother-in-law was 98 and a half when it was her time to go. And we had not been close initially, but eventually we became friends. And so, I've always said that her long life, the good thing about her long life is it enabled us to be friends because if she had passed... I mean, because when I met her, she was already in her mid 80s. So if she had passed when I had met her, there was a missed opportunity to develop a friendship. So we developed a friendship. And so I'll say the good thing about when she passed was that I was able to miss her. Because to be blunt, after I first met her, I wouldn't have missed her. And I'm sure if I had died first, she also wouldn't have missed me. So we developed this friendship. And it, I guess it eased me into the realization that like, okay, so now Lee's gone. What's going to happen next? And so I had about a year and a half, I think, off, if you can say it that way. I had about a year and a half off. And then we learned that my father had terminal lung cancer. And uh, this was very difficult And originally he was given six weeks to live. And the beautiful thing was that through some medication that he was able to get, which, and his doctor did such a good job. He never said, this is going to cure you. He just said it could give you more time here. And it did. We got him for six months. And you know, the beautiful thing of that six months, even though it's hard, is that we got to have, let me think, we found out in May 
So we got to have Father's Day. We got to have my mom's birthday. We got to have my birthday. We got to have my dad's birthday. We got to have Ed's birthday. We had all these lovely final moments together. And then my dad passed in 2012, two days before Thanksgiving. And yeah, that was tough. But even the beautiful part of that is that we were there in time we got to spend his final couple of days with him and my mother. And he was my dad. I call him like the death coach <laughs> because he was so positive throughout the whole thing. And, you know, to your point earlier that nobody gets out of this alive, you know, my dad would say that all the time. And he would usually say it with a little twinkle in his eye. And I always felt like he was saying it to remind us I'm good today because he had a lot of good days. We were so fortunate. He had a lot of good days where he's like, I think today we should go on a road trip. Let's go. And, uh, you know, we went off on a road trip. But he would say every once in a while, you know, like nobody gets out of this alive. And so I feel like he was reminding us, like, I'm good today, but it's still true that I am dying. And so that was just a wonderful thing. And he and my mom had just such a wonderful love story. Like the last thing that my father said before he, you know, when people, a lot of people, when they pass from cancer, they kind of go into like a coma and they don't, you know, there comes a time when they don't speak anymore, but they're still with you and they can still hear you. That's an important thing to remember. He looked up at my mom and he said, are you okay? And it was just the most beautiful thing. Like his last verbalization was he was worried about her. And I remember we grabbed her and hugged her. And we said, dad, we've got her and we've got each other and go do what you need to do. And so it was, of course, difficult. And I was so close to my dad. It was very difficult, but so beautiful, you know? It sounds like it was very, that you created a very gracious experience, a very gracious leaving. Well, you know, we worked absolutely to do that. And, and I have to give my parents credit for that because they had spent time together. Like, how do we want this to be? You know, I love what you said about your dad, because the first thing that came to my mind was he was in living intentionally, which, of course, is like my whole platform of live intentional and fearless every day. And you just gave a lot of great examples of he was living intentionally with let's go on a road trip. Let's make this memory. Let's create this experience because he just was in tune with this idea that we're not getting out of here alive. We have so many days. I feel good today. Let's make a memory. You are spot on. I mean, that is so true. And as you say that, I'm picturing upstairs on one of my bookshelves, I have this little certificate that my dad made. And one of the treatments he had was radiation. Again, not because they thought it would cure him, but because he had a tumor that was developing, making him have pain. So they were able to use the radiation to shrink it. And they used this machine called the True Beam. And so my dad nicknamed the machine Trudy. <laughs> it's so cute. He called it Trudy. He said, I'm going in to see Trudy. He made a certificate for them, something about Trudy and Trudy, like it's like it wraps you in like machine arms or something. And so he had something like, hold me close, Trudy, hold me in your arms. And then he gave that certificate. He gave one to me and he gave it to the people at the radiation center and they just loved it. They just loved it. And, you know, I was there after he died and they still had it up like in an area where everyone could see it. It was like the cutest thing. And so you're right. He intentionally created memories. It was beautiful. How long after he died did your mother pass? So mom died two years to and one day. And I, poor mom, I think she was a strong-willed woman. So I'm surprised she didn't get it 100% her way. I'm sure if she had had her way, it would have been like on the exact anniversary mm -hmm. of his death. But yeah, so two years and one day. 
And she did such a good job because, gosh, that was so hard. You know, again, they were so close. They had been, I think, 55 years or more. I can remember. Congratulations. Giving, yeah. I mean, I remember giving their 50th wedding anniversary. So maybe it was pretty close to 55 years. And yeah, it was lovely. And she did such a good job because, of course, it was so hard for her. But she kind of recreated her life. So she's the one who you know, taught me to recreate my life and, and how to move forward when it was my turn. And she would get up every day. So mom, complete extrovert. Me, even though I'm talking a lot today, not much of an extrovert. And my mom, you know, she really needed people. And my dad was her listener. He provided that contact. And so what my mom learned about herself was she got up every morning. She would go off to church. Then she would maybe go to breakfast with some of her friends. Or she would go to Costco or Walmart because the, in the little town where she lived, it wasn't crowded. So you could go to a Costco without you know being ambushed in the parking lot. And it was just so cute because like all the people who gave, you know, because I'd go visit her, you know, we didn't live in the same state, but I'd go up and visit her as often as possible. And like, I'd go with on her little run with her and I'd go with her into Costco. And like, you know, those people that hand out the samples, mm-hmm. they all knew her. They would give her big hugs. It was the cutest thing. Same thing, even in Walmart. And, you know, I mean, at first, because, you know, daughters can be difficult. When she first told me what she was doing and she was like, and then I went to the store and it was like, in my mind, I'm like, you're going to the store every day. And I was a little worried because I was like, mom. But then I real when I visited her and I went through her routine, I realized she's going to the store every day, but she's not becoming a compulsive spender or something. She's buying like one thing. Like she's purposely just saying, oh, today I need to buy a jar of jam. And that jar of jam was just an excuse to get out and be with people. No, I like that. And I like how she naturally strove toward a healthy, that she just knew that she intuitively knew what she needed. And so she opted for making choices that were toward her healthiest mental state. That's great. Yeah, she did. I mean, she just really, you know, went to it. So it was just really lovely. And and she was a very active, like I said earlier, you know, strong-willed gal, very active, loved her garden, had a beautiful garden. And in fact, I know for a fact that she worked in her yard the day she died. So how did she die then? Well, she had a heart attack and she died. So I'll step back for a minute. So when my mom, after my dad died, you know, I used to speak to my parents regularly, sure. But I started calling my mom every day. And at first, I think she was a little suspicious. And even one time she said, well, first of all, we took turns staying with her off and on for like a month after dad died. But then, you know, the time came, we had to come home to our routine. So, and I would call her every day. And first she was so funny. She's like, are you just calling to make sure I'm still alive? (laughs) And I didn't say much, but what I was really calling for was going back to my mom being really extroverted. She was a talker, that Joni Maloney. She had a lot to say. And my dad was a listener and I figured she was going to miss that. And so I would call every day and sometimes I would say three things. And sometimes she would speak for 40 minutes and that's okay. And that's okay. But, you know, during some of those calls, still every once in a while, she'd be like, and I'm not moving. I'm coming out of this house feet first. <laughs> was her. I'm not leaving this house until I go feet first. Now, the funny thing, of, of course, was she got her way. That Joni Maloney, she had her day. I remember we spoke on the phone that day. And then I think this is how I know now, based on what I was told by others, was You know, she was sitting on the couch and she was reading her prayer book and off she went. So her death was unexpected. 
Yeah. In many ways, it was absolutely unexpected. I mean, she got to go exactly the way she wanted, but I was painting this story because at this point when my mom died, we knew Ed was dying. Ed was very close to dying. Ed was already diagnosed terminally ill with lung cancer. Ironically, so tell, tell the listeners who Ed is. So Ed was my late husband and he died from the same lung cancer that my dad passed from about two years and five days to the same date. So that was a little odd. And so at the time that mom died, I mean, we were full into the dying process with Ed. You know, I didn't know when, but I knew it was very soon. And so I had this story that mom was going to be around to help me be a widow. Mm. And that after I took care of business with Ed, I would visit, you know, go up and visit my mom again, different, she was in a different state. And maybe we would even travel together because she was in reasonably good shape and active. And, you know, my mom would help break me into being a widow. Right. But, so they died very close within days of one another. Yeah, they died five days apart. So how did you handle that grief? That had to be like tidal wave after tidal wave just rolling over you. I think that's a perfect description, just like grief tsunamis. I think, to be honest, part of me was in shock. And so it hit in waves. And part of me was just overwhelmed. And part of me knew, you know, I had to take care of things. So like, there's my mom in another state. And I also knew, so this was about a week before Thanksgiving. And I knew my mom was getting ready to have Thanksgiving. So one of the first things I did, and luckily we had a family friend, Bob, who I could not have lived without Bob stepping in and helping and being my eyes and ears and arms and legs up in Washington state where my mother was. And I, you know, I called him and, you know, talked to him about it. And I said, you know, could you first please get into the house? You know, I'll call the sheriff and let them know that you're allowed to go into the house and you can have a key. And will you please get the food out? Because there's food. I know my mom, she was an amazing cook. I know the kind of Thanksgiving she was planning. And I know a lot of that food is already in the house. Let's get that out to donate it. And then at that same time, I was also still busy with Ed because he was still alive. So, you know, mom went and then rapidly, like two days after mom, well, actually, Ed was beginning his end, if I can say it that way. When I found out mom died, I was actually in the emergency room. So I'll back up a little. So Ed was having some complications and we were in the emergency room. And while I'm in the emergency room, I see some phone numbers flash up on my phone. And I recognize that it's the area code. And by the way, I already knew intuitively, probably I knew my mom was gone because we, you know, again, we spoke every day and we had spoken on Thursday. I called her Friday. She didn't call me back. I called her Saturday morning. She didn't call me back. Saturday evening, I'm at the emergency room with Ed and I see these phone numbers and it's my mom's friends. Mm. And, and they're like, you know, Joanne didn't show up today for Mary's 90th birthday party and she's not answering us and we're at the house and we need to give your permission for the sheriff to break in. So that's what really happened. Wow. And, you know, I think sometimes you just get the strength that you have to have to take you through something. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I do remember sinking to the floor in the emergency room for just a brief second. Like I just fell to the floor. And I remember one of the nurses coming in and she thought it was because I was upset about Ed. And I'm like, no, I'm on the phone with the sheriff giving him permission because my mom's dead inside her house. You know, so I'm not going to say that was easy. And I remember that night, one of the nurses that was helping when he found out, he disappeared and he never came back. It was like that situation was even too much for him. And I mean, I saw him around. He just never came back to us. 
Right. So that's you, heavy stuff, Margaret. It's really heavy stuff. Yeah, it, it was, huh? Yeah. Was. But you know, in that moment, I needed to be there for Ed. And mm-hmm. he was in pain and we needed to get him some pain treatments and then we needed to get him in the car and I needed to get him home. And, you know, my focus was, was seeing him through whatever was going on, which was, a, you know, that was Saturday. And then I think he died on Tuesday. And then I think I was just so tired. And I think this happens to a lot of people. It's like, at first, you're just so tired. So you take care of everything and then you just sleep. And that's good because then you won't sleep. So that's the story. And I'm not trying to be like morbid bragging because, you know, there's, Whatever my story is, so many other people have other stories that are more people lost at one time and and more difficult. And this is just death. Death comes when it comes. It's nothing personal. And uh, we're all going to go through it in a different way. I like to say that uh, death is like a snowflake. You know, none of them are alike. Mm, That's interesting. They're all, you know, like, so my dad, my uncle, and my husband all had the same lung cancer, but they each had their own unique deaths their own snowflakes. You know, one of the things when I was reading your book, which it was interesting to me because you've written it in a way that's very easy to follow. The the chapters are short, the ideas are concise. And as I was reading it, I was just kind of picturing, okay, I'm reading this as homework and sure, I want to see what Margaret did, but I'm, you know, I'm prepping for the interview. But it actually affected me because the idea of the impermanence of life, the idea of deaths, of being able to plan for and do them graciously and gracefully and personal, some of the ideas that you brought up in there, I had been having you know, my body's just doing things different than it's done. And I was sort of fighting against that, thinking, why is this happening? And as I was reading your chapter and this idea of impermanence that, you know, not only are we impermanent here, but, you know, we might have good health one day and not good health the next. Like whatever state we're in now is an impermanent state. And you may also have, you know, be sick and that too shall pass and you will be well later. Like just this Mm -hmm. idea of impermanence is a powerful one to consider. And, After I got done reading, I went to a yoga class and I was just allowing, like I was just struck by this idea of wherever my body is now and what it's doing, it just, I need to allow it to do what it needs to do and whatever state it's in as it's progressing to where it needs to progress, you know, one way Mm -hmm. or the other. And all of that came as an impetus from reading the things about impermanence. And it was powerful actually really powerful because it was sort of a letting go of, I need to control this or fight this to, I just need to allow my body to do what it knows how to do. Oh, that's perfect. You know, you've read the book, so I don't end the book by saying, so now death is easy for me. Ha ha, the end. I mean, it's still difficult. I'm prepared for it. You know, like I said, I'm the right person to help my friends with it because I feel, you know, experienced. I feel like I know the Grim Reaper now. That's why I say like we're buds. Grim Reaper and I, we're buddies now. You know, I, I see him and I look and go, you here for me or who are you here for? Do what you need to do. He's just an escort. Anyway, he's not really malevolent. We've just made him that. But, you know, he's just doing his job. So why uh, did you name the book Carpooling with Death? One day, as I was beginning to realize, as I was grappling with the idea of loss of others, I was driving and I'm in the Los Angeles area. So, you know, most of our big cities in the United States and other places too, we don't have amazing traffic. We just don't. And so I was going to teach a class 
And I had left with plenty of time, but not enough time for whatever big accident had occurred on the road. And so I was beginning to get anxious because I was going to be late. I don't like to be late when I'm the teacher. And there's this lane called the carpool lane. It's over to the left. I look over that lane and people in that lane are moving. But that's the lane for if you're not in your vehicle by yourself. Because, you know, we drive around a lot by ourselves, especially in the Los Angeles area. We're that way. And I look over and I had this crazy thought. And this crazy thought was, I could get in that carpool lane. I'm not by myself. Now, I am physically by myself in the car at that time. But I'm thinking, I'm not by myself. Death is with me. Because I was, you know, I was walking around thinking about how death is going to be there. And I'm going to lose the people I love. And, you know, because of the Terry Pratchett character. And so I just had this crazy notion, like, I'm not alone in the car. Death is here with me. I could get into the carpool lane. And then I began (laughs) to think about how funny that would be. Funny, but not funny when they pull me over. <laughs> You're like, dude, can't you see the grim yeah. He's sitting I'm right there. by myself. This is my carpool buddy. And then, you know, they call for backup because they think they've got somebody. Okay. <laughs> you know? I just, I really pictured that whole scenario in my head. And I walked around with that idea for a while, even before I'll say, I think this was after my mother-in-law had already died, but before everyone else started dying, for lack of a better term, right? And mm-hmm. so I walked around with this idea of carpooling with death. We're just all carpooling with death. And that's wow. where it came from. So, Margaret, tips to help us become prepared to deal with the inevitable. This is your new area of expertise. You know, what tips can you give us? Well, I really appreciate what you said about how what you did and you started even accepting your own, the own impermanence of your body, because I think one of the things that helps us the most is when we don't rail against it. When I see people have a hard time with death, because again, it's, it's hard. You're going to miss the people you love. That's grief. That's okay. That's a fact. But what makes it harder is when we fight. Why did it have to happen? Why did she have to die? I mean, like, imagine if I had been like with my mother-in-law, why did she have to die? Gee, she's 98 and a half. How is this a surprise? I mean, it's harder when it's, you know, shocking and someone younger and things like that. But why did it have to die? We don't have to think that because the minute we're born, and I don't mean this in a bad way, the minute we're born, there's only one other outcome. And that is that we die. So to accept that as a fact of life and not a bad thing, just it's another natural process Just like we get older, you know, like you said, our bodies change. We do things differently. But what if my 22-year-old son dies of leukemia? That would be really difficult. And it would be very hard for you. Don't you think the natural question would be why? Why would you be the one to die? Why should we ask why? We all have a shelf life, if I can say it that way. We don't know what it is. We assume, because we read studies that say the average life of a woman in the United States is fill in the blank, and the average life of a man in the United States is fill in the blank. And it is really hard for parents. Parents, we want parents to outlive their children. That is how it usually is, but there's no promise that that's how it is going to be. Right. And that's so interesting, Margaret, for you to bring that up because there is this sense of expectation and fairness that everybody should have a nice long life. Right. And, yes. re- and in reality, gosh, there's tons of people, millions and millions of people, billions throughout the ages that didn't have a nice long life. There's absolutely nothing that guarantees that or and certainly nothing that guarantees fairness 
And mm-hmm. therefore, to make the assumption that everyone is going to live into adulthood and old age is a little bit of an arrogant assumption, really. I mean, logistically, we can look at it and that's what we want and we don't mm-hmm. like loss. But it's even more than a hope. I really do think it is an expectation because when I think about my life, I think about dying at an old age. Like, okay, I've got 30 more years, 40 more years to do whatever I want to do. And the reality is that could be so incredibly wrong. I might have a day. I might have four more days. Who knows? I do think there is something about that acceptance and recognition that, you know, it doesn't diminish the loss or the sadness of losing other people and beings that we love, but it certainly does acknowledge the reality that there isn't a shelf life for anyone. Exactly. And so, you know, in the example of a loved one of your son or any, for any of us, what is helpful is to let go of those expectations, to let go of the, we can call it a form of life entitlement, right? We have life entitlement. Mm -hmm. Um, We think, you know, we have so many years and what is helpful is to let go of that. And I know it's hard to let go of it with children because as a parent, you assume they're going to bury you. And and I hope that that is how it is true for you and, and all my friends with children, but we should let go of any expectations of anyone's life being a certain way. Yeah. In terms of how long we live or how we live, you know, we should let go of the assumption that, you know, like I love going on walks. I just took a three mile walk this morning with my friend and neighbor and I love it. One day I might not be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to dwell on that. Like, I don't want to be like, oh my gosh, I'm not one day. I might not be able to walk because maybe I will, maybe I'll walk and drop on a walk, which I apologize to her, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but we just don't want to have assumptions and expectations And even though that's difficult, when we can let go of those assumptions and expectations, then we can have more peace and we can really embrace what is. And if there are things we want to do, then like people talk about the ever popular bucket list, we'll stop having a bucket list and just do things. Right. And do things in the order that they're important to you. And if you get to do them all before you die, right on. And if you don't, at least you got to do cool things. I love this because we're back again to intentionally living. If you don't know if you have a day or a week or a month or a year or 10 years, you know, really, if you're living intentionally every day, you're being present in your moments, you're being with the people that you love, you're taking like your dad did those moments of feeling well and, you know, having the resources to create memories, to live intentionally and fearless every day, then when the clock does run out, you've at least used your time. And I would say wisely, but really just use your time so that it was satisfying to you. Yes. In the best way possible that you can. So I love that when you talk about living and intentionally, you also say fearlessly, because this is about getting over the fear of death. I mean, it is a big fear, but once you live in this place of, I know death is coming, I don't know when, but that's how it ends for all of us. Then you can stop worrying about it because, you know, fear is about the unknown. Sure. Death is known. I mean, I don't know the day. I don't know how, but it's known. I'm going to die. So when I can not, I can put that away and stop worrying about it. I have so much more space to do other things and to live joyfully and to appreciate things how they are and how, you know, every time you see your son, you can appreciate and love your son. And And also realize that if I accept this state of impermanence with all of us, then when I see my son, both of my sons, I can look at them and say, I have this day. I have this day with them right now. Let's live intentionally. What do we want it to be? Exactly. It helps you prioritize, so to speak. Put away those devices and connect 
Because, mm-hmm. you know, the, what is the saying is like, nobody on their deathbed said I had worse. I wish I had worked more. Now probably it's going to be nobody on their deathbed said I wish I had FaceTimed more or Facebook on it. I wish I'd posted more on Instagram. Dang yeah, it. exactly. Exactly. So knowing what we don't know is a great way to really live, like you said, with intention and, fear, and be fearless and just grab your life. I love this conversation and I feel like we could go on for a lot longer, but we are running out of time. So tell me in closing two things. One, what have we not covered yet that you would really like to say either, you know, what does one do to help themselves during times of grief or what's important about a healthy balance between embracing death and also, you know, letting it stand. And then the last one is where can we find your book? I would like to say that this stuff is hard. You know, you and I were talking about it. I was able to write about it. I can sometimes, you know, you and I now have had this great conversation where we've even laughed while we're having a conversation about death, but it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. And so be kind to yourself. One of the most useful things you can exercise is your own self-compassion. And self-compassion doesn't mean that it's okay to eat a half gallon of ice cream because you're sad or that it's okay to be in your pajamas every day because you're sad or it's okay to drink a pint of vodka because it's sad. Self-compassion means to take good care of yourself during this time to put yourself first to be aware of your energy and where you are. And maybe you need a pajama day or two a week during the first few months, and that's okay. And maybe you have some ice cream, and that's okay. And maybe you don't participate in all the social activities people want you to participate in, and that's okay. And maybe you'll be like me, maybe you won't, and you'll keep like makeup remover and fresh makeup in your purse because when you drive to and from places, you're going to cry and then you'll pull yourself together for an event and then you'll cry all the way home. And maybe that's how it'll be for a little while. And that's okay. Everyone's grief is different. I can't give you magic like, bam, you'll be fine in 90 days. I don't think that that's realistic. And know also that people around you, they mean well and they want to help you, but so many people don't know how. Some of you are like most loved people. They want to be there for you. They want to help you, but they also, you know how you're saying like how you didn't want to read the book. So people love you, but then they also don't want to be around you because you remind them of death and sadness. After your self-compassion, maybe have some compassion for them as well. You know, when I am with people who've gone through something hard, and this doesn't happen all the time, but just occasionally somebody will say, I can't believe what so-and-so said to me during this hard time. And, you know, and then they'll requote whatever that was. My first thought is, you know, they just didn't know what to say. They were trying their best to say something that they felt would be helpful. And, you know, maybe they were insensitive or maybe they tread on you know, you have a hot button or a landmine around that particular wording, but for them, it was coming from a place of care and love. So I think it really is important to give people the benefit of the doubt because they don't know. We, I'll say we, we mm-hmm. don't know what to do. And sometimes even when we're close to you, I don't even think it's, so some of it might be, we want to stay away because it's a dark place, but sometimes it's just, they don't know whether you need people or whether you need grieving space. And since you don't know what to say to them, what do you do? Sit there and look awkwardly at the person as they suffer, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why it becomes a difficult place to navigate. So, you know, maybe what needs to happen is if you personally are going through a grieving space like this, ask for what you need because people do love you and they probably will 
be willing to reach out and give you what you need. Just ask for it. You're so right. And that is a thing I was not good at, by the way. And that's a super helpful piece of advice. And you're right. People are going to do and say some pretty bonehead things because they don't know and because they're uncomfortable. In hindsight, looking back, I realized that some of the things people did or said came from their place of fear. Sure. So that's important too, is to know that. And I I say, guard your energy. So if there is someone who, even if they mean well, they're not (laughs) able to avoid doing and saying things that harm you, it's okay to not spend time with them. Sure. You may give yourself permission to edit your friend list. I'm not letting you tie this up very well because I just keep asking more questions. But I I just remembered when I was reading your book, one of the things that I really liked about it, and so I just want to mention it real quick, is the concept that you brought in of the personal aspect of a personal death. You referred to it a little bit, but I liked, or the idea was a little bit liberating of building, just creating what it is, not thinking it has to happen a certain way or in a certain time or certain things need to be done, but that you make it whatever it needs to be for the person that's leaving, the gracefulness of helping to escort them into their death. And through that, whatever that means, whether it's home hospice or whether it's in the hospital or whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you go skydiving and you don't open your chute. <laughs> <laughs> You know, whatever works and whatever is ideal for the the personal ushering out of a life. Well, you know what? Actually, you are giving me a a good opportunity to to kind of wrap up in in a way. Yes, you are right. I think that whenever possible, when we are with someone, now we know we're all dying. So, I mean, when we are with someone and they have been diagnosed as a terminal illness, if you, the two of you together can talk about the death and acknowledge the death and what is coming and talk about how you want your time to be, like my parents did, like Ed and I also did, then you can give them what we call a good death because you're not going to be able to prevent them from dying. So clawing at them and 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 I'm not saying it's, you can cry. It's okay to cry. And your loved one knows you're sad, but you know, crying and don't go and that's not helpful. Having the death be the way they want it as much as what we can control will give them a peaceful death. And then that gives you something that you can feel good about when they're gone because you're still going to be sad. But so how I'm going to use this to wrap that all up is, and the way to be able to do that is to have a comfort with death. So if you make friends with my friend Grimm, then you are able to give the people around you the deaths, the good deaths, because you're not afraid to face it. Love that. Thank you so much. Where can they find your book? Please go to Amazon. You will find me on amazon.com. And if you look for carpooling with death, you will be able to find it and you will find the paperback and the Kindle version. You can jump right in and begin your own journey of making friends with death. Thanks so much for allowing me time and listening and being here. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Margaret. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. conduct my interviews for this podcast, one of the themes that often repeats itself as we deal with some of the most sacred and dark places that we have to travel is often death of a child or a spouse or a loved one. This is what's at the heart of that struggle. So today's interview was to share Margaret's story, but also to give tools as we all must eventually deal with the conclusion of our stories, as well as the conclusion of the stories of loved ones. I hope you've received some insights and tips or 
inspiration for a positive mindset shift as we face the final chapters of our stories. Margaret's book, easy to find. Her links for that will be in the show notes on www.loveyourstorypodcast.com. And as you know, my motto is to live intentionally and fearless every day. I want to quote Henry David Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die discover that I had not lived. My new book, Life, Live Intentional and Fearless Every Day, is also available on Amazon, links on loveyourstorypodcast.com, and it is full of 21 life connection challenges to help you create more connection, more possibility, and more self-care in your own wonderful story to live intentional, to help you live on purpose before your own final chapter comes along. Thank you for being here today. We'll see you next week on the Love Your Story podcast.